Uh, yeah, eight, Acts 8.26. It's a joy to be with you guys this morning, uh, the faithful and um, the tired, the tired and the faithful. Um, we all feel it. Just before we, we read this, um, I, um, I have a standing offer today. Part of uh, the ministry that my, my wife and I do through Standing Stone Ministries, where we pastor, pastor, shepherd, shepherds, um, is just to be a resource to them. And so I have a standing offer today of, look, the week after Christmas, I will preach if you want me to. And um, so, um, yeah, he took me up on it, which is awesome. And so uh, for, to be able to um, fill the pulpit for my friend and my pastor, um, it's been a real joy to sit under Dave's teaching. And um, yeah, it just, it's, uh, it's a real honor to be able to be here um, with you all. So Acts um, 8 uh, in verse 26, and in honor of God and God's word, if you would stand. Acts 8, 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that leads down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. Like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. This is God's word. You may have a seat. Well, talk about a passage that seems pretty far removed from our day and age. We're talking about eunuchs and chariots in a desert. It feels like a thousand miles away, thousands of miles away, thousands of years away. But here we are on Sunday the last Sunday of 2017, and one of the reasons why I chose this, as Dave and I were talking about, what 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 are we what should what should I preach on? Or um, he just said, what's been what's been something that's been on your heart for 2017? And as I thought back, this passage has been kind of a thematic passage for me and even my family over the course of this last year. And it might seem kind of strange. Hopefully, it'll make some sense by the end. 
Um, But this is a fascinating, fascinating passage. And as we look at the book of Acts, as this passage is smack dab in the middle of the book of Acts, um, the book of Acts is in many ways about how God's invitation to salvation, the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and how that invitation, that good news, makes its journey from the core of Judaism, the central heart of Israel, Jerusalem, and the journey that it takes out to the fringes of Judaism and beyond, and actually becomes this new source, this new sense of Judaism. Sometimes we, for, we forget that the followers of Jesus were all Jews. And so what we practice is essentially a, a new covenant form of Jewish worship, the one true God, Yahweh. But the book, Acts, begins in Jerusalem, but it ends in the pagan hub of civilization, Rome. Not in the temple in Jerusalem, but in the pagan environs of Rome. It ends far from the temple, and it ends, or it begins in the temple, in the temple courtyards, but it ends far, far away. And along the way, God takes his church on an uncomfortable, but ultimately joyful journey, where they're forced over and over and over again to ask the question, why should we not include that person in our fellowship? Why should that person be left outside of our doors? And this very uncomfortable, every chapter of the book of Acts is uncomfortable. This is certainly one. This is a boundary-breaking encounter. When Luke writes the book of Acts, he is He's pressing the church, he's pushing the church to ask this question again. Why ought we not have that person worship with us if they believe in Jesus? And it's not always a great, it's not always a great answer. You read sometimes in the book of Acts and there is pressure, there is conflict about, no, that person shouldn't be. No, yes, they should. And there is this very uncomfortable journey that we go on as Luke takes us through the book of Acts. And so this expansive journey from Jerusalem to Rome, or from better yet, pious Jew to including pagan Gentiles. And one of our stops on this journey, we read this morning, and it's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. So let's take a look at, at this eunuch. We'll take a look. First, we'll look at the eunuch, and then we'll look at Philip. But um, Acts 8.26, and we'll just kind of walk through, and I'll show you a little bit about this. 8.26, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza, the desert road, or the desert place. So he went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now there's a lot of stuff in here. Okay, First of all, what do we know about this man? It says that he's an Ethiopian. Ethiopia attracted a lot of attention in the ancient world. As a matter of fact, Ethiopia was synonymous. If you were reading this in the first century and you heard the word Ethiopia, it was synonymous with the ends of the earth. It was as far as you could travel. And so when you're reading this and you hear there's an Ethiopian, it means that this is the most exotic person you could think of. Ethiopians were known for their distinctive um, facial features as well as distinctive skin tone. um, Ethiops, the word Ethiops in Greek literally means burnt face, okay? And Ethiopians were the yardstick for darkness of skin tone in the ancient world. 
And so when you're reading this in the first century and you hear that there's a man from Ethiopia, you think the most exotic region possible and thus the most unlikely to hear the gospel or even respond positively to the Jewish gospel of the Jewish Messiah. And so as we think about how this would have been heard, this was an Ethiopian. Oh, for, by the way, it, it's, it's probably, we're in North America, we're in um, post-Civil War um, and Civil Rights era, right? It's, it's a pretty important to note, in the ancient world, skin tone was rarely a cause for prejudice or discrimination. What was the cause for prejudice and discrimination was social status, Okay, skin tone had nothing to do with it. High social status or low social status was the point of discrimination in the ancient world. So skin tone might have said this man was exotic, but this man was of a very high social status. Look at what else he's called. He's called a court official, or in Greek, it is a dunastes, a powerful man. He was an elite government official of this exotic land of Ethiopia, which would have been a modern day Sudan or what was called Kush in the ancient world, but he was a court official. Uh, he oversaw the treasury of Ethiopia. He oversaw the treasury. He's like the secretary of the treasury, okay, of Ethiopia. So this man is not just, I remember the first time I read this, this passage, I have this in my head, I have this idea of this one black man walking down this road. This is not one man. This is an entourage. This is a covered chariot with an entourage of people around him, some walking, some riding animals, maybe horses, maybe camels, but he's in a covered chariot. And he's riding. He probably has some attendants beside him. So you have to think about this is an entourage, a caravan, if you will, but all around this one man, this is a very powerful man. This is an elite social government official. He's writing in a covered carriage. He's also reading or being read too, which means that he's a man of some learning. So as you're reading, it's actually in the Greek, it's really interesting. In Greek, um, it changes tone. Like It kind of sounds like he's, he, he actually is talking in kind of highfalutin language. And so when he's, how does one know unless someone guides them? That's the kind of language that comes out of the Ethiopian eunuch. He's very, he's very well educated. He's very well spoken. But it also says that he's identified as a eunuch. Now, all right, this is where the, uh, the, the church talk about male genitalia comes in. All right. You didn't, you know, it's like we had to end 2017 with something like this, but a eunuch could simply mean an official or a chamberlain, but it also meant someone who had been castrated um, or perhaps partially dismembered. Yes, I know. And we're like, wow. So yeah, this seems very far away from, uh, but service to, queen, to the queen or around royal wives in the ancient world oftentimes meant castration for court officials. Um, and this is where we're reminded of the gap between 21st century and the ancient world. Actually, after 2017, we might think that some of our government officials might need to be. Okay. Um, all right. But suffice it to say, we probably, we in this room probably don't have a category necessarily for like a, a castrated man who has access to national treasuries, like that's not kind of on our radar. 
And so there is a bit of a gap in the text. But eunuchs were not unheard of in the New Testament times and in the ancient world. These were, this would not have been a difficult category for people to understand. But it does pre- present some uncomfortable questions for the Jewish Christian audience who's reading Acts. And the question is, what do we do with this man? Deuteronomy 23.1 states bluntly, No one who is emasculated or has his male organ cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. You didn't get that one in your Awana class, did you? (laughs) The navigators missed that one on their scripture memory. But it's very blunt. It's very straightforward. The Judaism of the day would not have known what to do with this man. He's an exotic foreigner of elite social status who has an interest in the Jewish scriptures and Yahweh, the one true God, and is willing to travel a thousand miles to come and worship. What do we do with him? And so what can we make of Luke's inclusion of this man into the story of the assembly of the Lord? What does all this mean? And for Luke, this is a boundary-breaking encounter. So he's gone on a long journey, we already said, from Sudan to Jerusalem, about a thousand miles. My parents moved about a thousand miles. They moved to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And I keep reminding them, you guys moved a hundred miles away from the Canadian border, okay? That's a thousand miles away from here. So that's the kind of journey in a covered chariot that this man made, okay? You think about it, it takes like two and a half days to drive there. Covered chariot's gonna take. So this man has gone on a long journey. And it says in 827, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And as much as this man was interested in worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, it's difficult to say just how close he was able to get. Jewish worship was already a set of concentric circles. The Holy of Holies. The presence of God, the high priest could go in once a year. The holy place, priests could go in, go in daily or monthly and offer incense and sacrifice, but only priests could get in there. And then you would have the temple courts. Only Jewish males in good standing could make it into the temple courts. And then outside of that, you had the courtyard of the women, the courtyard of the Gentiles. But over over the courtyard that entered into the temple courts, you would have the sign that no, no, Sorry, women, no females, no Gentiles, no slaves could get in there. And so you have this this set of concentric circles about how close people could get to God, to the presence of God, and these purity standards. And so Deuteronomy 23 says one of the purity standards is this idea of males in good standing are, are, are going to be essential, well, circumcised for one, to enter into the covenant, but there cannot be any impurities or defilements. And being a eunuch would have been one of those things. So he could approach Jerusalem, but not the temple. He would always be a fringer, never an insider. The the ultimate inclusive, the, the right of inclusion into Judaism is circumcision. This man would never be able to be circumcised, ever. Either a decision, either he had made that decision or someone else had made that decision for him, but it was not, not reversible. 
Not even today. And so he was forever going to be an outsider. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and we don't know exactly how that went for him. Luke doesn't tell us. Only that he was now leaving to go home. There's another component of this man's... Are we all here? Are we, are we tracking this morning? I mean, this is... It's, obviously, we are traveling back in time. Although, we're going to see that when we, we're going to start talking about people with ambiguous genitalia or ambiguous gender identity, that now we're back in the 21st century, aren't we? But this man had an interest in the scriptures. There's one component of this journey of faith. He had an interest in the scriptures. Now, on his way home, he has possession of an Isaiah scroll. We don't know if he came with it. My guess is that if you're making a thousand-mile journey you're probably going to get something, get some souvenirs, right, on the way home, right? My guess is that he purchases an Isaiah scroll when he's there. And now on the way home, on the road, this, this kind of 30-mile road from Jerusalem to Gaza, they had opened it up and they had started reading. He's reading it or having it read to him, and he doesn't understand it entirely, but he does see the scriptures as something that would provide guidance, and he wants guidance, but he doesn't understand. So let's, let's back up a little bit. Let's just and allow me to speculate a little bit, read between the lines here about the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe he expected to be a fringer when he showed up in Jerusalem, but he had made a thousand-mile pilgrimage that would just end out, outside the gates Maybe he was expecting it. Maybe he, did, he wasn't expecting it. Maybe he didn't know that his eunuch status would disqualify him. He was not used to being an outsider. He was an elite politician in his day. He had access, to, he had access where no one else would have had access in his culture, in his place. But not in Jerusalem. So perhaps he came with a heart full of worship only to be left at the gates. And maybe he showed up and asked, what prevents me from worshiping God? What prevents me from identifying with you all? Why can I not worship God like you? And on top of this, he's a few miles out of town, his servants open up the Isaiah scroll that he just bought, and they're reading it, and he has no idea what it's saying. And at that moment, a slightly perspiring Jewish man comes running alongside his carriage. Do you understand what you're reading? Now, I just want to take a second, and this is one of the reasons why this passage stands out to me in 2017, is I just want to acknowledge um, the sovereignty of God and how God in your life, in my life, in the Ethiopian's eunuch's life will take Scripture, the Holy Spirit, circumstances, and God's people and bring them together at various times in our life to punctuate something, to make a point, to communicate, to guide. And it seems as though God takes great joy in doing these sorts of things that leave us scratching our heads. But in this moment, God has done just that, where he has taken the circumstances of what has gone on, the scriptures, and he has dispatched 
a man, one of his people, to go and meet this man in this moment, at the right time, at the very right time. And there's something about God and his sovereignty and the joy that he takes in being sovereign that we need to reflect on, that I've been reflecting on over 2017 and plan on continuing to reflect on and trying to figure out what is it about this passage that has resonated so completely. So let's leave the, uh, the Ethiopian eunuch. Let's leave him here for a second. Let's talk about Philip. Verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes from the Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And so Philip is in Jerusalem. Philip is this interesting man. We don't hear a lot about him in Scripture. We hear that after there's a controversy about do we feed, this is a horrible controversy in the early church, um, but do we feed the widows who no longer have Jewish husbands? Their Jewish husband died. They're Greek speakers, but do we continue to give them food? Like that's the early church. That's a real controversy in the early church. That's there in the book of Acts, and they ask this question. And one of the people that they call on to answer that question and to carry out, they say, no, 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 we have to continue. That's one of the questions. Do we continue to involve these Hellenistic widows, these widows who, don't, who no longer have Jewish husbands? Do we continue to keep them part of our, our, our congregation? And they say yes, and one of the people that they choose to oversee that process is Philip. Stephen is one, Philip is another, and there's, there's a few more. Okay, but Philip is this guy, he's kind of a boundary-breaking guy. And so he's in Jerusalem, and an angel of the Lord appears to him and says, I want you to go to Gaza, but I don't want you to take that road, I want you to take the desert road. So the angel tells him which road to take, which is fascinating to me. And Philip is then led by the Holy Spirit to catch up with the chariot in front of him. So somehow, the Spirit says, see that chariot, go get with it. So Philip runs in the desert, which doesn't seem like a very good idea. I've been in the desert in Israel. Unless you know you have water, don't run in the desert. Doesn't seem like a very wise thing to do, but he runs in the desert. And when he gets there, when he gets there, he hears being read out loud what was probably the most central Old Testament passage that the early church leaned on in order to explain the substitutionary death of Jesus. God had just orchestrated it, that scripture, circumstances, the Holy Spirit, and God's people would come together. Why? For one Ethiopian eunuch. For one Ethiopian eunuch, a man who had been relegated to the fringe, disqualified, but we're going to find out not for long. And it deserves some reflection on our part when we think about our own stories. Think about your own story for a second. And how God's, God has orchestrated the circumstances of your own life. Where maybe you have been in a season, or maybe as you think back, that God has had certain scriptures that have come to mind over and over again. For me, sometimes it'll be, I'll be reading in my own time a certain passage, and then somewhere else, totally unrelated, that same passage will come up. Or someone else will say, oh, I was reading this too. And that, that, that scripture kind of comes from various angles. Or maybe he brings certain people into your life and there's a certain impression upon you that you think this is not just a chance encounter. Or sometimes God speaks or he gives impressions or there's a weight that he puts 
on you or I. And we realize that God is guiding, that God is providing a slow, steady pressure in a certain direction, or that God speaks and it's unmistakable because you hear the weight of, or you feel the weight of it. And some of you probably are here this morning, you're thinking in 2017, and oftentimes we say that God has been trying to get my attention. And these seem to be the ways that he does it. Through scripture, through his people, through his own voice of guidance, in this case, through an angel of the Lord. And you're starting to see these things come together. And you're wondering, why would God be doing this? And I'll just want to say this, this is one of the things that has been standing out to me. The reason why God is doing this is because he loves you. Because God will crush every obstacle between you and him. Because that's what he's like. That's what he's like. And if nothing else, I need to be reminded of that, and I'm here to remind you of that this morning. And that's one of the reasons why this passage has been so so rich and so, so influential this past year in my own life is this idea that, look, God loves you, and he will crush every obstacle between you and him. God, look, God will, God sends, he sends his people to go run in the desert after disqualified people. Why? Because that's what he's like. That's what he's like. He's not content. He's, he, he, he wants to be sovereign. He takes great joy in being sovereign. He takes great joy in redeeming what has been disqualified. That's who God is. That's our God. It's amazing to think about. And here we have a story of just that. All right, I'm, I'm getting worked up. Let's back up. We've got an Ethiopian man who cannot be circumcised, is having the good news preached to him from Isaiah 53 by a slightly sweaty, perspiring, out-of-breath Jewish man. All right, here we go. Who loves Jesus? Okay. Um, so the implication in the passage is that Philip opens his mouth, he gives the gospel, and the Ethiopian eunuch comes to faith. He believes. And then he asks a question that I'd always read as this rhetorical question. What prevents me from being baptized? But after thinking about this, this is not a rhetorical question. This is a real question because he's been asking it ever since he's gotten to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem, he goes only so far, he can't go any further. He gets to the scriptures, he can go only so far and not further. And now he comes to this place, this water, and he says, is there anything that prevents me from being baptized? It's not a rhetorical question. Is there anything else? Do I have to stop? Can I keep going? And one of the beautiful things, one of the beautiful things about baptism as an initiatory rite, and this becomes the main initiatory rite of the early church and of, of our community as well, that you put your faith in Jesus, and baptism is kind of this symbolic initiatory rite that says this, is, this person is part of our community, that circumcision is no longer the basic initiatory rite. Something that was exclusionary of women, of slaves, of Gentiles, that's no longer the initiatory rite. Baptism is. Anyone can get baptized. And so Philip says, 
There's nothing. Nothing prevents you. You can, you can be fully immersed in this water, in our community, in the love of God, in the presence of God. You can be fully immersed. There is nothing that stands in your way, and I'm happy to go down and get baptized. Think about this. This high-ranking government official orders the caravan to stop so that he and this Jewish man can go down into water. In the desert, and he does. And it says that he has great joy. And then something weird happens. Philip is whisked away 15 miles to the city of Azotus. It's kind of a weird prophetic thing, but he gets whisked away, kind of Elijah-esque in this. But, and, then the, and then the eunuch goes, says, okay, I, that, I guess that's the way it works. And he's going to go on his way rejoicing. <laughs> and he does. And he goes on his way. I know, isn't it? It's, it's, it's great. It's great. <sighs> Yeah, two, so two things. I want to say two things, and then I want to um, come back to this, to the, to the eunuch. Two things that have essentially stood out to me about this story and have really made their mark on me. And um, the first is I've already kind of alluded to, but I just want to say again. Um, one has to do, do with the Ethiopian eunuch. And I, I, in this story, it's weird because you... A lot of times when we read stories, we find ourselves in the story and we relate to a character more or less, right? And in this story, if you're relating to the Ethiopian eunuch, here, here's one. This is what I want to say, and this is what I think, I think is a message that God is continually giving to me and reminding me of for myself, and it's this. Nothing you've done, nothing that has been done to you, or nothing that you've done to yourself can disqualify you from the love of God and the joy and peace that salvation is meant to bring. Okay? Nothing you have done, nothing that someone else has done to you can disqualify you from the joy and peace that salvation is meant to bring. Amen. Amen. Okay? That... that that is the posture of the Christian. Whatever situation we go into, that is the posture, that's the primary posture of a follower of Jesus. When you think about the legacy of Jesus, I've been thinking about this, the, the behavior of Jesus, the kind of legacy of Jesus, Jesus seems to be the person who has to go into situations and remind people this person is not disqualified. That seems to be the legacy of of Jesus. And, and the last couple of years, I've been doing work, again, taking it back to the 21st century, I've been doing work on, um, on the Bible and same-sex attraction and gender dysphoria, transgender issues, things like this. And as I have been doing this work biblically, thinking about the passages, thinking about contemporary experience of that, thinking about the tone and language of that discussion... I keep coming back to this has to be my primary posture as I do work in it. Not as a culture warrior, but as someone who says no one is disqualified from the love and grace that Jesus offers. Now, if I can go from that place, now I, I still have some difficult work to do, but that has to be my primary position. That has to be my starting spot when I do this. And this story reminds me that God sends his people not to be culture warriors. He sends his people to run in the desert after disqualified people. Okay? So that, 
to me, and I, I just want to remind you, if you're feeling, look, we've all done and had things done to us in various degrees that we feel deep shame, deep guilt, disqualification, and we need to hear this again and again and again, that God will send a person to run after you and tell you you are not disqualified, okay? That has to deeply sink into our hearts daily, daily. So that's the first thing about this, this passage that has really um, stood out to me. The second thing has to do with Philip. And this is where I just want to um, kind of, I've had this experience this year, but um, to put it in, in kind of metaphorical terms, where has God called you to run in the desert? Like this idea that God has probably put something on your mind or on your heart or has given you some kind of guidance, but you're like, yeah, that's not, a, I, like you kind of talk yourself out of it because it's not wise. It's not smart. It doesn't show good planning. It might make you look dumb if it fails. God tells Philip to go run in the desert. You want to hear a great verse? Great verse. Go back up to verse 26. An angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go. Verse 27. So he rose and went. It's even more stark. When you read it in Greek, it's even more stark. Rise and go. So he rose and went. Look, I am the king of talking myself out of what God is telling me to do. Okay? I can reason it. I can think it. I have this very rich internal world. Okay? <laughs> where I can, I can talk myself out of what God is saying. And the interesting thing about God's voice, and I, I've said this before, but I'll say it, I'll say it again. Um, God's, God does not argue with you. God simply speaks and he lets the weight of his voice do the work of arguing. How do you know it's you? You know it's you when you're arguing with yourself. <laughs> God seems to speak very simply, oftentimes very quietly, but with great weight. And I would just encourage you, if you're like me, and maybe this last year in 2017, you have felt the weight of something that God has called you to do, to start something, to a person, an activity, somewhere to get involved, somewhere to serve. I don't know what it is for you. I know what it is for me. I'm not telling. Um, I know what it is for you, right? I, I don't know what it is for you. But I would, I would just encourage you to revisit it. Because God may have just said, rise and go. And the proper response of the followers of Jesus is to rise and go. So he arose and went. I don't know what it is for you, but I would just encourage you um, for 2018 to take, if there was an impression, a weight of something that has been on your mind, um, to take this moment and just say, well, it's time for me to get up and do it. Because that's, well, ultimately, you have to think, why? how does the Ethiopian eunuch, how does this story happen if not for Philip? Obviously, there's a lot of things. There's scripture there's the spirit, there's God's sovereignty, there's what's going on in the Ethiopian eunuch's heart, but there's also Philip. And God seems to think that in order to, for this man to hear that how can I understand unless someone explains that God seems to know that idea. That I need some kind of human agent to show up 
and be part of this. Why? Not because, it ha- because that's where my great joy comes from. All right. One last thing, and that is this. You think about just the sovereignty of God. It's already off the charts and so far in the passage. So Philip, they go down the water, and Philip gets whisked away. So now I'm thinking, okay, what is the Ethiopian eunuch going to do? What do you think he's going to do? He's going to keep going, right? He's going to keep going back to Ethiopia. What do you, what do you think he's going to do on that ride back? He's going to keep reading probably, right? He's going to keep reading the Isaiah scroll. Okay, so he was in Isaiah 53, right? He was in Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. That's what it says in the passage. Well, if you go ahead to Isaiah 56, three chapters ahead, okay? Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56, verse 4 says this. For thus says the Lord, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. (laughs) And you think like when Isaiah's writing this, when Isaiah's writing this down, like Isaiah's like, to the, okay, okay, all right, to the eunuchs. And, And God's like, look, I'm putting this in here Because a a thousand years from now, there's going to be this Ethiopian eunuch that's going from Jerusalem back, and I need this in here, because because Philip's going to be whisked away, and all he's going to have is the scriptures, and he's going to have to come to it, and it's going to punctuate what has just happened. It's going to remind him that I still see him, even outside of Israel, I still see him. Even outside the temple, I still see him. And God says, I'm going to take great joy in this whole thing. I'm going to watch it, and it is going to make me so joyful. Because that's what God is like. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We love your word. We love your spirit. We pray. Should we pray this? We pray that you would take us on that uncomfortable journey a joyful journey, but an uncomfortable journey. We pray that you would drill deep into our soul that we are not disqualified and that there is no person living or breathing that is disqualified from hearing your gospel and coming to faith. We also pray, Father, that you would move us as you will, not as we will, but as you would. And we ask that you would help us to be responsive. I pray for my brothers and sisters here as they think back on maybe some kind of weight that has been pressed upon them by you, not by the enemy, not by anyone else, but by you, that you would help them to respond in obedience to it. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.